continuing our series within a series on what it looked like to live a, genu- a life of genuine worship. We, we're taking this back end of Nehemiah chapter 12, which essentially is uh, God's people hit the climax of their walk with him when they, they have this corporate worship gathering to just honor God for the good things that he's done in their lives and how he has redeemed and restored them. He's brought a, a fallen people back to, hi- back to himself. And so this series within a series began in Nehemiah chapter 12, but it, but it really is rooted in a conversation that Jesus had with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John chapter 4. We've been using this truth in Nehemiah and then really trying to fast forward to the New Testament to see what the particular application of this worship truth is in our lives. And if you were not here the past couple of weeks, I'm going to take just a minute to frame this because it's important. It was in John chapter 4 that Jesus gave us a very clear teaching on, on what it meant to, to worship God genuinely. What it meant to have, uh, we might even call them two characteristics that must be present in a life that is genuinely worshiping God. He taught us that first it must be done or enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit because our ability to to connect with Jesus, our ability to know him, our ability to commune with him and speak with him is all done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is essential to Christian worship. And secondly, Jesus tells us that we we must do it in spirit and we must do it in the truth. And the truth he's speaking about there, it's the proclamation of the kingdom. It's the truth of what he teaches us in the New Testament. It's the truth of what we keep in that book, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, in spirit and in the truth. And so, in other words, the the summary point of what Jesus is saying there is that God wants to be worshipped for who he says he is, not who you and I might make him out to be. And that was the main issue Jesus is addressing. And we know this clearly because he's talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, who, who really has a gross misunderstanding of what worship is at this point in her life. She thinks that worship is validated by, by a place, not necessarily the posture of the heart that Jesus talks about. This place called Mount Gerizim. She thinks if we worship there, really doesn't matter what we do any other day of the week, but if we worship there, this is where God wants to be honored. And Jesus tells her, listen, the mountain, yeah, you can have genuine worship on a mountain, but the mountain is not what validates worship before God. God desires to be worshiped in everything we do with all of our being. Every word we say, every deed we commit, he wants these to be acts of worship, things that we do and say that honor him. And we know this because of the Greek word used to define worship in John chapter 4. It's a super, super precise word in the Greek proskuneo. It's a word that literally means uh, adoration, bowing down, getting on your knees before something that is greater than yourself. And we crafted out of that that, that definition, a pretty practical, a functional definition of what worship actually is. And I want to share it with you again today. Worship is the act of bowing down in adoration before God because you genuinely see him as greater than yourself. It's a posture of the heart that compels you to give your ultimate love and affection to God by living your life in light of his truth because he's worthy of it. Short definition is you recognize the greatness of God, you, you worship him because of that, And then in light of that, your life begins to look more and more like Christ every single day of the week. Our knowledge of God is connected to what we do for God. Now, in these last weeks of our study, we're really going to dial in to what worshiping in the power of the Spirit is and what truth is, because this is how essentially God leaves us in the book of Nehemiah. This is the place where the book should have ended, but it didn't. And we'll address that in two weeks. And we're going to look at another teaching today that really gives us some clarity from Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, which teaches us that one of the greatest evidences that a person is worshiping Jesus is when they are filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. They're living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that this is a traditional passage used to talk about uh, the way the Holy Spirit works in us. It's a passage that gives us kind of a framework, if you will, for worship. And one of the things that it really does show us is that, that our, our worship, right, in particular what we do in here, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Our worship in here is not meant to start and stop in here. 
It's meant to be something that, that creates what we would call a spiritual formation in our lives. What we do in here, there, there are invisible rhythms that we'll discuss this morning that are meant to shape a lifestyle of worship everywhere else we go. So this is just one worship waypoint in, in our week. It's an important one, but nonetheless one that's meant to be fuel for the other days. So let's jump right in and look at this first truth that we see in, in Ephesians. It's this, the clearest mark that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit in here, right? This is what we're talking about, is when you live a lifestyle of Jesus-centered worship in your life. So now we see we get another tool from God to be able to worship God 24-7, not just on the mountain or, the, or in the theater, but in everything we say and do. And in Ephesians 5.18, we'll split this up into two sections this morning. I'm just going to read the introductory statement that Paul gives us. He says, listen, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, much like the word worship, we've talked about the kind of controversial nature of that word, that oftentimes the, the most significant truths in Scripture, right, the, the, the belief of who the Holy Spirit is and what He does, understanding clearly what worship is, these, these words really are weighty words in the Bible. They have super, uh, impo- they're important to our lives, and there's a great relevance that if we understand them, that, that begins to shape our life. These words are super important to the faith. And so this idea of the Holy Spirit is another belief that is incredibly important in the Scripture, but it's one that is also very confused in the modern world. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit has unfortunately become one of the most confusing statements in the modern church. And depending on who you're talking to, you're very likely to get a different definition of what that is supposed to look like in your life. So for those of you that have a longstanding church background, I don't even just mean here, but I mean maybe you grew up in the church or you've had a lot of interaction with the church, you have likely heard at some point in your life this kind of a statement. That person or that church is filled with the Holy Spirit or that person or that church is, is not filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? The idea is that the Holy Spirit is doing something and people to a certain degree are trying to understand whether or not he's working in a person or a church's life. And here's the, here's the difficult thing here with this, is that there's a, a lot of confusion about what the Holy Spirit does. And we don't have time to address every single issue, but it is important that we briefly address the root issues that, that create every other issue. In other words, there's an issue beneath an issue that causes confusion in our minds of the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's a problem because he is central to the Christian faith and to worship, according to Paul and Jesus. Now, the first root issue is that it's when a believer or a church sensationalizes the work of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by this is think of a person who, who takes, like as we read the New Testament particularly, there, the Holy Spirit's working in many ways, but oftentimes he is not working in what we would deem as sensational ways or the miraculous. They are truly sensational and miraculous, okay? The fact that the Holy Spirit is working in the lives of people, drawing people to Jesus and helping us grow in Jesus, that is a miracle in and of itself. But in the common day world, it's not necessarily something that looks miraculous, okay? When I say a person or a church that sensationalizes the work of the Holy Spirit, what I'm talking about is a person who takes the the truly sensational, miraculous things the Spirit does in the New Testament. They take what is the miraculous, and then they claim that this needs to be happening in everybody's life on on a regular basis. So the miraculous is no longer miraculous. It becomes the norm. And even worse is sometimes we begin to make unhealthy tethers with these two ideas. They can say, listen, if you, if you don't have these great and miraculous things happening in your life, as if being conformed and transformed into the image of Jesus is not miraculous enough, like Romans, will 12, Romans 12 will teach us here in a few minutes, they'll then say, you know, it's, it's even possible that you don't even know Jesus because this stuff isn't happening in your life. And what happens here is a teaching is created that shapes the way a person understands who the Holy Spirit is. 
And in doing so, it is very likely that a person who only expects the Holy Spirit to work in super miraculous ways all the time, what winds up happening is they, they actually start missing the clear and explicit way Jesus says the Holy Spirit will work in their life. And so the Holy Spirit's always working, but we can't see it because we've got a different set of lenses on. We're, we're looking for something that God doesn't promise us. So we have this over-sensational kind of expectation from the Holy Spirit. The second root issue is when a believer or a church devalues the work of the Holy Spirit. This is more likely going to be if our church ever suffers a deficiency with the Holy Spirit because of our pedigree and our connections, this will be the one that is a bigger issue for us. And this is what happens when, when we develop a belief system about the Holy Spirit that really isn't refined at all. Um, I've, I've joked before when we've talked about the Holy Spirit, and I say that it's the kind of person that says, you know, I worship God the Father, Jesus the Son, and that other thing, the ghost, the Holy Spirit, or, or whatever he's called. We know he's in the Bible, we know that he's important, but we don't actually understand who he is enough to recognize the, the incredible duties that he performs in our lives on a regular basis. And in this camp, the Holy Spirit is misrepresented in a very different way. He's treated like an unwelcome guest. It's, it's like he's here, whether we like it or not, indwelling in every single one of us that is in Jesus and working in this room now, guiding my words, guiding your thoughts, guiding music, guiding everything. He is here, but we're kind of afraid of the fact that he's here. So we lock him up in the back of the church, at least we metaphorically try to, because we're afraid of some of the modern abuses that we might have seen. We, maybe we either misunderstand, don't understand at all, or we just, we just have seen some poor examples of the Holy Spirit, and therefore we choose to to kind of diminish his role in our lives. That's one side of, of devaluing the role of the Holy Spirit. The other is just a very practical one. You know, we live in the modern Western world, and it's not hard to see that in the modern Western world, spirituality has both a great place and then not a place at all. We have a, a very loose form of spirituality that's in our world today where, where the idea of the Holy Spirit is kind of valued, but not the clear and particular one that the Bible speaks of. So the idea of something spiritual is good. But the idea of the Spirit being Jesus' Spirit is not good because it's too explicit. It's too refined. It actually causes us to make serious decisions in light of who Jesus is. When it's not just a Spirit, when it's His Spirit, and His Spirit leads us to look more like Jesus, that changes us dramatically. It makes us start thinking about things we never wanted to think about. It causes us to become things that we never wanted to become because we're being transformed into the image of Jesus, no longer conformed by the patterns of the world. You have another side of the fence here, though, where people just don't have a place at all for spirituality. We, we live in a world where sometimes people think the spiritual is ridiculous. It's hokey. And we have a lot of examples of that. But in, in the Christian faith, if, if we are subliminally embracing this idea, if we're essentially saying, like, I, I believe in Jesus, but the idea of, of this faith being deeply spiritual, of God being able to work in our lives in ways that, that we can't even always see physically, if we embrace that, we will start ignoring passages in the Scripture that talk about the significant and personal role the Holy Spirit plays in our life. And this tends to breed a very cold and lifeless brand of faith. It creates a callousness Christianity. A lot of confusion. But despite the confusion, one place we can always go to to clear up confusion is Scripture. And so I'm thankful that God has given us a very clear definition of who the Holy Spirit is and what he has done. And we'll begin this today and unpack it finally next week. In the Bible, kind of in an introductory way, I've, I have always believed and I've always said a good, a good analogy of how the Holy Spirit works is that he leads people into a deeper relationship with Jesus by revealing God's truth to their heart. So when Jesus says, if you really want to worship me, you must do it in spirit and in the truth, what he's saying is, I'm going to leave you my spirit. When he leaves, his spirit is here to help us know Jesus more deeply according to his truth. That's what he does. 
And he is, therefore, God's spotlight on Jesus. Wherever we are, no matter where we're going in life, if we're in him or not in him, wherever we're looking, if it's not on Jesus, he is gently and graciously and sometimes very firmly moving the light back to Jesus. He's calling the attentions of our heart back to him. And because of that, he never, ever, ever works in a way that removes the spotlight from Jesus. So whenever we sense the Spirit moving in a way that's distracting our, our attentions from Jesus or others' attentions from Jesus, we know we have a potential problem about the role and the work of the Holy Spirit. And the main problem with the abuses that we just spoke about is that both tend to push people away from Jesus. One creates a hyper-exclusive faith, what can almost become a false spirituality. If these things aren't happening in your life, God is not real. The other creates a lifeless faith, one that lacks spiritual vitality. Both are problems. Both move us away from the, from the goodness of who Christ is. And so in Ephesians, to give us a clear picture of what the genuine work of the Holy Spirit looks like in our life, Paul gives us a, a rather interesting, but nonetheless an apt analogy. He, he uses the analogy of drunkenness to help us understand who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Next slide, please. So this is a rather interesting but accurate way of explaining the work of the Holy Spirit, Okay. Paul begins by teaching us a, 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 a contrast, if you will. He's saying pursuing Jesus in the Spirit and drunkenness. These are the two words that he gives us. And he's, he's comparing and contrasting what life in the Spirit looks like with these two ideas. And here he says, listen, do not be filled with wine. Do not be drunk. That's the word that's being used here. Don't be drunk, yet rather be, be filled in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the definition of drunkenness here is a pretty clear one. It's essentially saying it's, it's a, a, a person is at a place in their life where they make a conscious decision to saturate their life or soak their life. That's the idea behind these words here in, in something, right, to the point that it takes control. And so here we're talking about alcohol, right? What, what he's saying here is, listen, when, when a person is drunk, what they have literally done is they have, they have consumed so much alcohol that their, their body is now saturated by it, and it is now in, it's in, it's in control. The alcohol is in control of the person. And what's kind of ironic about uh, drunkenness or drunk people, if you've ever seen one, is that they tend to think they're really in control of things, but in reality, they're usually totally out of balance when it comes to every area of their life. They start acting in ways that they normally wouldn't if they were sober. So they start laughing at things that wouldn't necessarily be funny, but they don't really have a, a, a faculty to discern what is good humor and what is not. Sometimes people, when they're drunk, they're quick-tempered. They might be passive in everyday life, but when the, when the booze takes control, they, they wind up getting to this place where they get very aggressive. And even in the most benevolent sense, you know, simple tasks like you know, keeping a wheel straight as you drive or sticking your hand in your wallet, uh, sticking your hand in your pocket to grab your wallet, which usually is a 10 to 15 second task in our lives, this might take a lot of time because they just cannot control themselves to actually accomplish what it is they're trying to do. They're so compromised in life that they actually, they, they can't function. And even worse, some people use drunkenness to try and escape from the problems of life. And this is an interesting kind of thing to think about. You know, a lot of people, you, you've probably heard this analogy of, of drowning your, your sorrows in a bottle. A lot of people do see substances of all sorts, alcohol being one of them. This is, this is one of the things they do. To, they try to forget about the realities of life by, by getting to the place where they kind of forget everything. They, they're purposely trying to lose sense of their faculties to distance themselves from the challenges they have in life. This is a huge reason why, why people become alcoholics. They want to escape the realities, the hard ones. 
Now, I want to be clear here because this isn't the point of this passage, and I'm not saying this today. Um, This is not a text that prohibits drinking alcohol. That's not what Paul is saying here. It is a text that's giving us some serious warnings about the abuse of it. That's what he's talking about here. And what he's saying here is that we should never saturate our hearts with anything in this life to deal with life, anything but the Holy Spirit. So whether it's alcohol or money or material items or relationships, if we're using stuff to try to fill us up, if we're trying to let these things dominate who we are to find fulfillment, he says, listen, it's the, it's the wrong saturation point. You have the option, we all have the option, to be saturated and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, who promises to lead us to an unrivaled fulfillment in Christ, which no substance, whatever it may be in our life, ever can. We're sipping from the wrong well, essentially, is what he's saying. And he's using drunkenness as the analogy. And this is because when the Holy Spirit saturates your heart, it produces a fruit in your life that leads to a fullness in Jesus. It takes control of you in a different way, in a really good way. This is what God wants us to see here. When you worship Jesus in according, accordance to his spirit and his truth, when you let the power of the Holy Spirit guide your life, he begins to do some pretty amazing things. He causes your life to, to sing different songs. I love how Paul marries this idea to the back end of these teachings. We'll get to it in a minute. But he's saying, listen, be, don't be drunk. Be filled with the Spirit. Start singing, is what he says. And singing, we already know, cannot be reduced to worship here on a Sunday. He's talking about the battle cry of our hearts. He's talking about the, the ability that you and I have to sing a new life song. We have the ability to, to dance to a different tune in our lives. He's saying, listen, if you, if you really want to remain in control of your life, if you really want to to have a grasp on life when things are good or bad, if you want your heart and your mind and your emotions to be in control, to be stabilized, even when things are truly out of control in your life, when hard times seek to rob your joy, he says, if you want this, then you have to, get, you, you have to stop saturating your life with things that can't promise and deliver and start saturating your life with the power of my spirit, with the power of me, Jesus. And to do that, we have to embrace the daily discipline of shepherding our hearts. We have to be willing to meditate upon and grow in the grace of Jesus. Because when we do that, we can sing a new song. We trade the songs of bitterness and sadness and hurt and anger and sorrow that many of us sing and many of the people we love sing. That's their life song. It's anguish. That's all they know. Jesus says, listen, you can trade that for a new song, one that's marked by hope, by love, by joy, by peace. To be filled with the Spirit means we've learned to sing a new song in our daily lives. And just like the great psalms and the hymns and the songs of worship that we sing in here and the truths of Scripture that we, that we study in here, these are all meant to give us a pattern for life. They're not meant to be things that we just dabble with or dabble in on an hour in Sunday morning. They're meant to be truths that radically shape how we, how we live. In other words, what we start singing in this place and what we're studying in this place is meant to continue when we leave this place. This is a genuine act of worship, but it is not meant to end here. It's the beginning of a song we should be willing to and should desire to continue singing after we leave this place. It's a a victorious battle cry of sorts. Think about the song Oceans we just sang, right? The the idea is that the Spirit's going to direct our steps even when we don't know where we're going. That is probably going to matter more tomorrow morning in your life than it will right now in this room. That's the way God designed it. He wants you and I to know that what we sing in here, when it is done in the power of the Spirit and it reflects the truth of who Jesus is, He's giving us these things forever. These promises we sing in here, they are, they are truly uh, guiding truths that are meant to guide our lives in anything we do and everything we say and wherever we go. And so to live and worship in the Spirit really means you, you decide to saturate your life in something different 
if it's not Christ. It means you stop letting negative emotions, things like fear and anxiety, saturate your life. You can't be ruled by those things, Paul says, because the Spirit can dominate those things. If we are ruled by anxiety or fear or some of these other negative emotions, what happens is it will keep us from becoming who God wants us to be. And we've already established at the very beginning of this series that the whole point of the book of Nehemiah is essentially saying God's people, are, they're in a place, it's not a good one. And God says, I can take you to a place that is a good one if you'll follow me because of the power of his spirit. Because in Nehemiah, we see they are saturating their lives with the grace of God and they're growing in him. And the same promise is true for us. Those of us in the New Testament that, that really seek to be saturated by the power of the Holy Spirit, filled by him, we seek to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. It changes who we are. We trade sorrow, bitterness, anger. We trade negativity and fear and anxiety for beautiful guiding truths in life, peace and hope and joy, a Christ-like confidence. That's what the Spirit brings in us. He doesn't remove challenges, but he gives us a humble confidence to know challenges do not own us. Jesus owns the challenge. He helps us to have a life marked by peace and by hope, a life that maybe not necessarily easily, but willingly learns to sacrifice for Jesus. We learn to say, you know what? I do bow before somebody that is greater than me, and I want to live my life like that, like him, for him. That changes the ante in what we see as priorities in life. And it also creates in us a desire to share with others that lack of hope. The beautiful thing about this teaching today is think of think of it this way think of the gospel of jesus christ right there are life-changing promises in what jesus says to us that are too powerful to ignore and they are too meaningful to be selfish with in other words what jesus promises us at the very least even if you don't believe it's worth weighing the words and seeing if the kind of stability and hope and eternal joy he offers if to see whether or not that's real too powerful to ignore for the christian we've affirmed them to a certain degree And that means we should never want to ignore them. We should want to dwell on that and live in them. And if we are believers, if we truly believe that they're too powerful to ignore, then that means they are too important, too meaningful to keep to ourselves. They've got to be shared. They've got to be spread. And that's why God gave us his Holy Spirit, whose main job is to keep us focused on Jesus' truth and promises while simultaneously burdening us to share them with other people. That's what he's doing, reminding us of the truth of Jesus and reminding us that other people need the truth of Jesus. That's our role on this earth for him. And he does this by training our hearts to to sing a new song, one that is patterned after this word worship, which, as we have discussed already, takes place in a room like this, but far exceeds the boundaries of this room. But for the remainder of this talk, I I really do want to focus on how what we do in this place really does shape life. This is the second truth I want to share with you today. The way we worship God in this place, the way we experience the filling of the Spirit, the way we, you know, choose to be saturated in the goodness and the grace of Jesus, the way we worship God in this place is supposed to set the pace for how we live in the world. And by the world, I mean your world, whatever that looks like when you walk out of this room. Let me read Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 in its entirety now. Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't get saturated with something that can't fulfill you like I can, like Jesus can. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, with hymns and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. About three months ago, in my living room, our worship team sat down and we talked through this verse about what it meant. And I want to share with you a little bit of of what came up that night 
but also what has come up from, from people that have been in this room with us over these past five years. Because over the years, a very common question people have asked the leadership of restoration is this. It's how free are they to worship in here? We don't get this much anymore because I think we've kind of established a quorum of what worship is. But if you have this question, I'd like to answer it now. And I have to admit, in the early days, this was a, a question that kind of shocked me because as a church, while we talked through what worship would look like and what it meant, we never really like, uh, developed a protocol or a rule for this question. In fact, we've always kind of functioned under the assumption that one of our jobs up here is to create an environment where anybody visiting us feels free to worship God in here. And I can tell you that from here, we all pretty much feel a, a definite freedom to worship God from the front of the room. And I hope that you feel the same. In other words, we feel free to worship in the way God leads us, corporately, obviously, but, but there's no kind of impediment keeping us from honoring God the way we feel is important. Now, that said, if you're a stickler for a rule, uh, there probably are some general guidelines we can introduce here. So let's say uh, raising hands, that's okay. Being energetic, that's okay. Clapping, that's okay. Moving a little bit. I tend to do that on Sundays. You probably notice I got the holy wiggle down front. I don't know what it is. My feet just want to tap to a drum beat because I play the drums. And God's just talking to me. And so I'm listening and trying to follow him. So if you want to clap or move or sing to your, your lungs burst, that is all okay. You should do that. On the flip side, though, if you want to do things like handle snakes, if you're really into that verse in the back of Mark, that is not okay. We don't do that here. And as a rule of thumb, reptiles of any sorts, not okay here. We don't want to do any of that, right? None of that stuff. I, just, I don't like them in my yard, and I certainly don't want them in the theater. And although that's not explicit in our, holly, I mean, our regal contract, I'm sure snakes in this room are not permitted. So I say this, right, to say, kind of tongue-in-cheek, to point out something kind of important. Uh, there are expressions, many expressions of what worship can look like in the local church. Some of them, much like the way we understand the, wor the work of the Holy Spirit, some of them might drift into stuff that's a little extreme that we're uncertain about. Some of them might drift into an another extreme, like we, we hear that the, the Spirit of God is present, that He's promised to dwell in us, but we don't necessarily feel that in the truest sense. I'm not talking about like, you know, unbridled emotion. I'm saying like in the depths of our hearts, we do not, we do not discern the presence of God. The expressions of worship in bodies in local churches are dramatic. And I'll give you an example of this. While, while I was in seminary, I had some of the most interesting talks I've ever had in my life while in school because for these years you're, you're under this, this one campus, you have people coming into this place from all different walks of life. Every single person is pursuing some type of a pathway to serve God in the church or on the mission field or in the academic institutions. And so what winds up happening is, is you get a cluster there were, I think there were about 3,900 students at, uh, at New Orleans Baptist when I was there. So think about that. Every single person with a unique story and a unique faith pedigree, they're all coming into this place with their, with their understandings of things. And then we come into this institution that's trying to generally shape us in a way to make sure that when we leave that place, we, whatever we came in with, we're leaving with, it with truth in our hearts that honors Jesus. So because of this, as we were all young sorting this stuff out, we, we had amazing conversations. And I remember talking to a guy, about worship style uh, in the local church, and he was adamantly arguing that the only legitimate expression of worship in the church was to play hymns with biblical instruments, especially the piano, which, just in case you don't know, was not around when the Bible was written, but he had a construct to deal with that. And this, thank God, is not necessarily as big a, a problem uh, today. I think there are still some churches that suffer from this or deal with this, and thankfully it's not our story. But nonetheless, uh, this concept of worship war shaped the face of the church for almost 20 years. Uh, I've said in this room before when talking about worship that worship is one of the, uh, it's one of the things that God has given us 
to unite our voice together in song to him. And so I'm not surprised that the enemy has used it as something that divides God's people in amazing ways. In other words, what is supposed to unify us in thought and speech and love is now fracturing God's people. This was the great problem with these types of ideas. And so wanting to really be faithful to Scripture, I said, well, how did you come to this conclusion? Like, how did you come to the place that only, only these instruments are okay or this style? And he quoted uh, Psalm 150, which is a very popular um, psalm. And the psalm is a, is a psalm about worshiping. And if you don't know what it is, I'll briefly share the, the opening remarks of it. It says, you know, praise God with the harp, praise God with the lyre, praise him with trumpet. And it just goes on to talk about all the things you should praise God with. And a great many of them are, are instruments. And so he went on to say in Psalm 150, this, this psalm gives us the only list of instruments that you can use uh, in, a, in a church service. So he had created a, a very defined belief on what worship is, and then he began to judge what was right and wrong based on it. And of course, electric instruments were not on that list. Now, this is a, a, a common worship belief. It's a common one, but it's also a really bad one. Not, not even because it's arguing about instruments. That was not my concern in that moment. My concern was that it was built on a really bad biblical interpretation method. In other words, if you're going to come to Scripture, we have to come to Scripture and say, okay, God, Spirit and truth, what are you saying to me? We can't write our own narrative on top of God's narrative because if we truly are worshiping him, we're going to be honest enough to say, I realize I've got to come to your terms and whatever it is I'm dealing with. And so I told him that and I explained to him why I felt like this was such a, which, such a dangerous belief. The point of that psalm, much like our text in Ephesians, is not meant to narrowly define one biblically approved expression of musical worship. It's not meant to do that. It's not meant to say singing only songs of thanksgivings that are hymns. That's the only thing you can do in this place. That's not what Paul is trying to say there. Neither is Psalm 150. Both of these verses and the many others like them, they're trying to teach us something very different about worship. They're saying, listen, every breath you have, every step you take, anything you pick up in this room, anything you do when you leave this room, all of this is meant to be used in worship to God. This is trying to really unrestrict the nature of worship. It's trying to show us that worship can't be reduced to to just instruments alone, to just a certain thing alone. It's really a complete lifestyle. And the problem with this conversation I had is that in this singular instance, uh, the the Bible was made subordinate. What happened was this this guy actually came to Scripture and said, I'm going to let my personal preference and and the thing that I like regarding style, what I was raised with, I'm going to let this define what worship actually is. He created a theology of worship that reduced worship to musical preference alone. And there are two really important things that we can learn from this story. There's a, there's a truth about how we understand Bible. We, the Bible, we've got to be honest with God and willing to let him speak to us. And sometimes that's going to correct and change where we're at in life. That's a big one, but that's actually not the one I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about two that particularly shape how we understand worship. The first is that as, as believers, we must be careful to never deem an expression of worship invalid if it's biblical in its substance. So if it's not prohibited by Scripture, we we should be careful to say that this is not of God. Because what often happens is, if it's not from our tradition, if it doesn't match up to our preference, um, we can often say, this is not good, not because it's not honoring God, but because we just don't like it. And the danger of that is that every church body is, is unique. Every single one. It has unique people and unique leadership, and it meets in a unique place, and it does unique things. There is a certain uniqueness about every single church. There's a unity in our diversity. We're pursuing Jesus, but we all look a little different no matter where we go. And so rather than penalizing worship environments for this, I think it's better for us to say that because God has made us different, 
And because he wants us to celebrate him according to, if you will, our local customs, again, in spirit and in truth, we should not use this as an opportunity to judge. We should use this as an opportunity to celebrate the diversity of, of God's people. And so this is why we encourage really finding a church home, because sometimes the particular vision, mission, and values of a church, it may not align with your heart. They might be good things, but not your things. But another church, for all you know, or maybe you came here from another church because the vision and value here was important. You love the fact that we care for orphans, that we want to serve uh, those in the adoption ministry, right? Maybe that's what, what God bound your heart to. We don't want to penalize uh, churches for not doing everything because we can't. We want to give thanks that they're diverse and God uses us in unique and meaningful ways. So the first thing is make sure when we condemn something, we're actually, we, have, we have the truth of Scripture behind us and not an opinion. And the second thing that I think is important to know from that conversation is we, we must train our hearts to never define worship as simply a preferential style of music that we sing in here. That was my bigger concern of the two issues, because that's detrimental to your soul and to the church at large. Here's why. Doing this over time will cause you to start worshiping the music or style at the expense of the God the music or style seeks to lead us to. Worship is a conduit. It's meant to move the spotlight of our lives, wherever it's looking, back to Jesus. So if, if it stops here... Right? If we stop looking towards Jesus when we're just listening to sound, or we, we sing truths in here, but we don't live them out there, what's happening is, is we've got a problem with the spotlight. It's focused in different areas. And that's the danger of misunderstanding worship. It's a conduit to lead us to God. And if we are worshiping in ways that, that we think we're worshiping, but we're not being led to God, then we have, we have a challenge we have to deal with. We got to figure out how this is honoring God because going back to our definition, we're no longer bowing before the one that we think is greater than ourselves and living our light, our lives in light of Him. We're we're worshiping an idol, if you will, sound or music or an expression. And we talked about the challenges of idols last week. It's it's a it's a fake faith. It's a faith that causes us to love something that isn't God, as if it is God. Now, getting this is super important. Understanding this root understanding of worship in here and in our lives is important. And the Bible teaches us very clearly that the way we worship God in here is meant to shape how we live life out there. So there is some confusion, but there's clarity in Scripture. If, if we reduce worship to a musical style, or if we simply see it as a, a, a set of catchy tunes that we like to sing, it means that we, to a certain degree, or maybe in its entirety, we have missed the heart of what it means to worship Jesus. We've missed the heart of Christ-centered or gospel-centered worship. In fact, this kind of philosophy is often more representative of, of pop consumer culture than it is of a heart-deep contribution culture for the gospel. It's, kind of, uh, it's producing two different attitudes in our hearts. One basically says, in a world that is, is largely me-centered, I mean, we kind of have seen some of the writing on the wall with this, it's not hard to believe that sometimes selfish tendencies can find their ways into a relationship with God. And so what that produces in a heart is a, is, a, is a relationship with God that begins to see worship, and especially in an environment like this, as like a, it's a happy hour for what we can get out of God. We come in here with all of our problems, and we want God to make them right, and we want to feel better, and we want to leave okay. And sometimes God does do that, but oftentimes, if you've been in the faith for a while, you know that God tends to work in process in our lives. God tends to actually work in our lives in ways where, where he doesn't fix things instantly, because he wants us to grow in the grace of Jesus as he's working in our hearts. Now, I want to say something here. I'm, I'm not saying, please hear me, that when we come into this room, 
We shouldn't come here to, to, want our be, to want our hearts to be renewed by God. We shouldn't come in here thinking that God doesn't want to replenish us. We should not come in here thinking that God wants to take what could be a weary soul and energize it. God wants to do all that. I, I promise you. There's so much teaching in the Bible about the promises of Jesus. The Holy Spirit wants to remind you of that if you've entered this room. He wants to remind you that, that there is a truth that defines your life, the grace and the goodness of God. What I am trying to say, though, is that that is not usually what the driving sentiment in our consumer culture is. There's usually a different sentiment pushing a worship style that I, that I want, what I want to get from God. What happens is people learn to love what they think they can get from God more than worshiping God him, himself. When that attitude is what dominates how we worship, when we simply see worship as a means to get something from God, to, to emotively fill us up or spiritually fill us up, what happens is we subtly train the heart to worship in a different way. We train the heart to worship the idea of getting something from God rather than learning to just love the fact that you get God. That, that's a radically different statement by one word. If you love what you get from God, you don't really love God. If you love God, then you will learn to appreciate deeply what he does give you. When the cart is before the horse on that one, one creates a, a faith that's all about me, and the other creates a faith that is dependent on God and is vibrant and electric. It's spiritually vital. And we can see this kind of living in the way that Jesus lives his life. Think of the ways that Jesus worships. It goes much deeper than him just taking. It's not defined by taking stuff. It's defined by giving. His life is spent in, for other people. It's poured out for other people. Worship in Jesus' life is not just song or even a specific kind of song. He practices lifestyle worship. His whole life is oriented around worshiping God in every area of his life. It's, it's, it's oriented around honoring God in, in, in great ways in everything he says and does. And so Jesus' life really gives us a strong reminder that when you're filled with his spirit, worship becomes something much more than just singing. Genuine Christian worship, spirit and truth, means you start, you're singing, but you're also changing at the core of your being. What's happening is, is in your devout worship for Jesus, God is changing you at the core of who you are, and he's making you more like his son. And so the songs we sing are now spiritual directives that recast our life image, whatever it may be, into the image of a good and a gracious God. This is what Jesus does. He's showing people the way God wants the world to work, and he's offering people an unrivaled, immeasurable, and unassailable peace, hope, Enjoy. He's the great visible image of our invisible God. And so worship should produce genuine change in us. And Paul really does say the same thing. I promised 15 minutes ago or so that we were going to read Romans 12 because this is, this is what Jesus is saying, what we're reading about in Ephesians, what he's talked about in John 4. In Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, he's talking to those men and women following God, in view of God's mercy, because you have recognized the greatness of, of a person named God and the fact that he's given his son as a sacrifice, worship, right? Bowing down before one that is greater than us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And that worship truth is really, uh, it's an important one. And that idea is something that we are actively trying to, to process as a worship team up here. We're trying to sit and to think through how can we take what, what in some senses might be the invisible rhythms of worship, of our liturgy here in this service, how can we make them uh, more visible to everybody in this room? And I, I want to take a moment here to say something. First is, 
I want to thank you guys for, for how encouraging most of you are about worship and about what happens in here. Um, on a pretty regular basis, I, I really do think our church has an above average score of, of giving thanks, of telling people that what they do matters, that, that what is happening in a room like this is helping people to love Jesus more deeply. That's encouraging, and it's, it's something that I think honors God, and it can really motivate, in a good way, the heart of the people leading worship. But I also want to make sure we don't make that an end in and of itself, because the reason this is happening is because God truly is leading our hearts to experience the rhythms of Christ's gospel of grace in this room. What's happening is God's working. That's the evidence of God's spirit working. And so for the next couple of minutes, the way we'll kind of wrap up this morning, I just want to point out to you what some of those rhythms of lifestyle worship are in here. I want to bring some, some light to things we do in here, maybe in an invisible sense, and how they really are meant to define what we do out there. It should be clear that what we do in here is meant to be connected to what we do the other days of, the, of our lives out there, six days of the week. Think about this. Each week, we gather in this place. That in and of itself is a, is a rhythm of worship. We commune. We have community. We get together. We get together as God's people uh, to sing about our love for Jesus, right? We maybe don't walk up to each other in the foyer and say, I love you in the name of the Lord, but you might go encourage somebody or care for them or let them rest on your shoulder. You might, you, might, you might talk to somebody, and then doing that, you are loving somebody like Jesus would. Out of that comes this thing that sometimes we bear each other's burdens. We catch up on life, and we recognize where somebody might have a need, and we care for them. In this place, we talk about the love of Jesus. We receive it. We try to show it. We talk about forgiveness. We receive it, and we try to show it. Each week in here, we're challenged to embrace Jesus' mission. We regularly sympathize with, clearly, but also challenge some of the skeptical attitudes that people have in our culture towards Christianity. We want to wrestle with unbelief and doubt in here in our messages so that we can speak the truth and love to people when we leave this place, so that we can help others who wrestle with doubt and unbelief in their life. We rejoice with each other about the goodness that God has shown us in Jesus. We, through talks, are, are kind of encouraged, spurred on into holiness by the word. We're trying to, to lay the standard of who God wants us to be, and then we support each other in figuring out how we get there. As we're worshiping, we're training our hearts truly to work out our faith in here with fear and trembling. And what's beautiful about that is that if you want a summary point of what's happening here, is we're trying to tell the story of the gospel each week in here so we can faithfully go, out, uh, go about living our lives and sharing it out there. Because the gospel is too meaningful to forget that's why we have the Spirit to remind us, and it's too powerful to not share with others. So that's why the Spirit reminds us that these truths are meant to be passed on. And I, I've shared this story with you three years ago, and I'm going to share it again, because this is, for me, this is the story that helped me understand this. This is when my, my cognitive understanding of worship moved into to my heart in a way it had never been there before. It was uh, in a church during a communion service. We do the Apostles' Creed here. That's common. Uh, a lot of churches from our pedigree do that. And we affirm, essentially, before communion, the basic beliefs of our faith, right? And what had happened was I was sitting in, in church, and I had about an eight- or nine-year-old boy sitting in front of me. And as we were reciting the Apostles' Creed before communion, he, he stood up with us and started reading the creed. And if you're a grown-up, the words are probably pretty easy to pronounce. And if you've been in the faith for some time, you probably have a, a heart-deep understanding of them. But what was happening here was the exact opposite. 
Uh, he could not understand the words. He was butchering just about everything he said, stumbling over them, was behind in some spaces. There were some words he couldn't pronounce, and it's fair to say at that stage in his life, he probably didn't even fully understand the magnitude of what he was, he was saying. And so as I was sitting here, uh, or sitting kind of behind him listening to this, it was without doubt the most distracting butchery of the Apostles' Creed I've ever heard in my life. And I've been saying this a really, really long time. And that distracting butchery is actually what made it so meaningful to me. There was a hidden beauty. There was an invisible rhythm happening at that moment that probably was only experienced by a few people around him. Because at this point in this kid's life, he was sorting his faith out. He felt safe enough in a room with other people, his, his church family. That gets a negative rap in a lot of our culture today. But in his church family, his local church body that he was sitting under his parents with, he was sitting in that room, literally working out his faith. And it was terrible. But at that moment, whether it was innocence, most likely at that point, there was an innocence naivete that, that he could do that in an honest way. without He had no regard to the fact that people around him were hearing him do this. He was just unashamedly being who he was at that moment, living his life amongst other people that loved God. It was one of the finest examples of how worshiping God amongst the body is supposed to shape kingdom living when we leave the body. And here's how. That boy was unaware of the grace and the patience two whole rows of people were, were showing him at that moment. In that moment, they were letting him stumble through his faith. I don't think he was fully aware of what was happening, but I'd like to believe that through the power of the Holy Spirit, as he grows, God will bring clarity to his mind about the importance of that moment in his life. Because in that moment, he was receiving grace, and he didn't even know about it. He was receiving grace from other believers. And that should create a pattern in our heart where we want to show grace to other people. Whether they sit in in a pew or a theater seat next to us on Sunday, or they're just in our lives in general. It was a moving evidence, an invisible rhythm, uh, visible to me at that moment. Grace in abundance. And so maybe you're here today and you have no problem. You've been, you've been with us for five years in communion services and you have no problem phonetically pronouncing the words of the Apostles' Creed. But you just are at a place in your life where you can't seem to believe them. Maybe that's where you're at. You can pronounce all the words, but your heart has not owned them, right? Or maybe you're here and you're stumbling through areas of your faith and your spirituality, or maybe it's your morality. You're trying to be something for God and you just cannot and you just are, you're, you're disappointed in yourself. Or maybe you're here and you're being wrecked by a struggle right now. You have not, you're not living the song or singing the song of, of hope and joy. Your, your life song right now is anxiety and, and fear and inadequacy. Maybe you feel defeated because your life feels like it's plagued with failure. Or maybe you're on the other side of the fence. Maybe you're here and you're really puffed up because you just can't fail in life right now. Like you touch it and it's gold. Maybe you're in that boat. I don't know. I'm sure we're all here in different places. You, you can do nothing but succeed. The point of this is that the way we stumble is going to be different amongst every person. But the reality that we all do is not. We all stumble one way or another. And so if you're here today stumbling through your faith, feeling empty, I want to encourage you. Ask yourself this question. What are you saturating your life with right now? If it is not the Holy Spirit, if you're not asking God to saturate you with that, you you have you have to think about that. Because God says, stop stumbling through the Christian life on your own and start asking him to fill you with the dynamic power of his spirit. Confess your sin. Give it up to him. And ask God to help you believe the truths of Jesus. Ask him to make good on his promise that he's going to show you his truth through his spirit. He's going to reveal Jesus to you through his, through his son's spirit. Ask him to remove the things damming up your heart, keeping you from experiencing his promises. And if you're here today not really in that boat at all, maybe you're here you're de- you know, devotedly experiencing the rhythms of worship in this room for one hour a week. But, but you're not actually seeing these rhythms, how this is supposed to shape life when you leave here. No, I've said this every week and I'm going to say it again. If we just make worship about this place, we're missing out 
Because God intended the way we're filled and empowered and encouraged in here to be what sets the pace for the way you experience Jesus in your everyday life out there. This is the beginning of a song you should sing for the rest of the week. There's not an end cap on this. So let your heart drink from the Holy Spirit. Get drunk on the Holy Spirit. This is the only time you're ever going to hear me say get drunk in this room. Drunk on the Holy Spirit. Let your life be dripping wet, saturated by the loving grace of Christ. No matter where you are, right now turn to God. Be honest with him because this is a safe place with people and certainly with God where you can be that. You can just tell him what's up in your life and prepare to receive grace, hope, and forgiveness. Know that he's already shown this is what he wants to show you because of his son Jesus. Let him make good on the promise that he makes to you in this passage that we read about in John 4 and that we experientially see in Nehemiah 12. The promise he makes to you is that if you will fix your eyes upon him, he will fill you with the power of his spirit. He will lead you to a deeper level of love and worship for Jesus. And so follow God's spotlight to grace, his one and only son. He is our savior. He is truly greater than us, but he has never acted like it once in his life. Let him create in you and me this ability to sing a new song, a song that is marked by hope, peace, love, and joy. Live and worship in the power of the spirit this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for, we thank you for the spirit. We thank you, God, that the promise of worship, just by the way Jesus teaches us about it in John 4, shows us that worship is a 24-7 thing. And so I pray, Lord, that this time we have had here together, make it meaningful in our hearts, make it matter, God, make it, uh, make it foundational in how we understand who you are and how we understand the way we are to, to carry ourselves and live in light of you. I do pray, Lord, this morning as we move into response time, that, that the way you have spoken to us today, that the songs we have sung, the hands we have shaken, the friendships we have deepened, the time we have sat listening and, and kind of contemplating your word, that you would use all these things, God, to lead us into a deeper level of love for you. Wherever our eyes are unfixed on you, I pray during this time you would fix them on you. And may the grace of your son Jesus, through the power of his spirit, now work in our hearts unimpeded, God, may we just truly be focused on you for these next moments to see where you lead us. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.